you have to have the facts first. You have to be accurate and you have your credibility. And that's the most important. And that's what he taught lots of young uh, activists and lawyers working at Amnesty, uh, the knowledge about the law while also developing the law. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, Steph. You ever wanted to make a documentary about somebody you admired and kind of explore the state of the world? Well, I sometimes have that fantasy of journalists where you hide yourself in a, in a barn and write a book, but um, I'm not that kind of journalist. I'm very much a wire journalist, and after 600 words, I, I, I kind of give up, and I think the documentary would be the same thing. But of course, it's very tempting, but also the funding is impossible. Well, we're very lucky that we've been joined by somebody who has managed to get the funding, has got the stamina of beyond 600 words. Um, we've got Nadia Huben, who's been a producer for this particular documentary, and Victor Fokker, who's been the director, and it's called The Long Haul. And it's been making the rounds, and we managed to catch up with them because they are in The Hague. They've been showing it at the uh, Leiden law school just down the road from us here at Humanity Hub. So hi, Nadia. Hi, Victor. Hello. Thanks Hello. for coming in. Thanks for letting us watch it. Uh, I didn't make it to the screening last night, but I had my own private screening on my couch. So um, this is a documentary about the life and the influence of a lawyer and activist, Nigel Rodley, who I hadn't heard of before, but now I feel ashamed after watching the documentary because he was a multi-talented uh, human rights practitioner. He worked on torture as the UN Special Rapporteur, and he set up the Essex School of Human Rights Center and worked at Amnesty International uh, really boosting their research and investigations and that helping their advocacy in that sense. So he sounds very inspiring, but what made you specifically pick him? Did you know him very much before you began this documentary or were you just asked to do it about him? I also, like you, I, while I studied law and international law, I never heard of Sir Nigel Rodley. I got to interview him, 10 minutes became one hour, and then we had one more hour of interview. It was a man that, that uh, I really didn't know him, but he entered the room and you sat down with him and talked, and it, it was, wow, this was one of these persons that you feel immediately, okay, this is really a, a remarkable and astonishing person, human being, and it, with an amazing energy, and so, yeah. And what about you, Nadia? You knew of him already? Yes, I also studied law, international law, uh, and I worked my whole life in human rights, and I worked for 10 years in Geneva for International Commission of Jurors and other NGOs. He was really well-known in the human rights world. So I knew who he was, and I was very happy that we could interview him. And it was a very... I, I just sat there, you know, listening uh, in awe, I think you say in English, uh, because he's such a giant in human rights. When he passed away, what struck me is that I saw on social media that so many people worldwide were paying tribute to him, from students to people who have worked in human rights for a long time. From all over the world, people were saying, he inspired me, he, was, he did so much for my country or for my organization or for me personally. Is that just because he had fingers in so many pies or was it because he, he inspired others himself? 
Well, he was the first uh, legal advisor of Amnesty International, and in that position he was instrumental for, uh, for example, the Convention Against Torture. He, he and some of his colleagues were the ones that uh, yeah, came up with the idea and who, who actually stood at the basis of this treaty. So that's one very uh, specific thing. But then he was a teacher as well. And everyone you speak to who was his student or his PhD student or his master's student, they, they said, we learned so much because he was rigorous. He was, you know, he made, he made uh, the best of them come out. Uh, everyone complimented him for being this person that can do so many things. He was an academic, but he was an activist as well and a diplomat, and he knew at what point to play what role. And he was to to add to that also in the negotiations and sometimes very tough conditions with governments, he never overstepped, he never exaggerated, he never uh, uh, gave his opinion, he was always following the law. So in a certain moment he got this reputation, even with governments, if Nigel Rodley says something, that then is it correct? So there was one example that even in in one negotiation, a, a group of diplomats said like, "Well, that would be that would be for sure if we do this. That would be for sure a breach of uh, international law." And then Sir Nigel said, who was at the amnesty side and and, and who was also against this me- this measure that they wanted to to put in, well, actually that wouldn't be a breach of uh, international law. But maybe we can do this and that and that. So he got this reputation of. Whatever happens, he will always follow the law, and so everybody believed him also. So his re- reputation was completely, completely clean, and and uh, yeah. But there was also this phrase that um, uh, this guy called Wilder or Wilder Taylor used, the former Secretary General of the International Commission of Jurists, guerrillas of the law, suggesting that somehow they operated uh, more like activists than yeah, people but, with but, suits and ties. But but within their limits, of course always trying to 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 accomplish the best result of the these negotiations with the with the lawmakers of certain uh, governments and when we talk about the amnesty uh, career there's a, there's a bit uh, in the documentary where they say very specifically because he was so attached to the law he made sure that amnesty had everything to back it up where it was not just naming and shaming but they had the facts and the investigation to back it up so can you explain a bit more about kind of the professionalization of amnesty um, that he brought about, and maybe Nadia? Yeah, you hear also some of his former uh, colleagues speaking about that. That at that time when they started with amnesty, it was uh, the amnesty candle and the naming and shaming. But he brought in an extra factor and saying, well, naming and shaming isn't enough. You have to make it legal and you have to be sure also. Somebody else also in the documentary mentions uh, Reed Brody, uh, former Human Rights Watch and also later a colleague of him at uh, ICJ was saying um, you have the facts. So you have to have the facts first. You have to be accurate and you have your credibility and that's the most important. And that's what he taught lots of young uh, activists and lawyers working at Amnesty Uh, the knowledge about the law while also developing the law. Because when he started, there was not much law yet. So he and his generations were the ones who were developing the law while working at Amnesty. And that's the guerrilla part as well. They were behind the scenes trying to come up with these treaties and feeding the diplomats who are the ones who have to make the treaties in the UN, feeding them with the right knowledge. 
And the uh, documentary makes the connection really clearly between not just the man and all the work that he did and the influence that he had, but also what's happening now and what has been happening in the human rights world. There's a particular part in it talking about the torture programme in the United States. There's been other documentaries that have come out on it more recently. I think more people know about it now. But there was, I thought it was a really great clip of uh, of Nigel Rudley, of Sir Nigel, as we should call him, uh, where he's quoting his own final report as special rapporteur on torture, um, which is from November 2011. It's to the UN General Assembly. So it's only just a couple of months after the these horrific attacks of 9-11. So let's just have a listen to him now. While time does not allow me to address in detail the relevance of the 11 September cataclysm to my mandate, I wish to state the following. However frustrating may be the search for those behind the abominable acts of terrorism and for evidence that would bring them to justice, I am convinced that any temptation to resort to torture or similar ill-treatment or to send suspects to countries where they would face such treatment must be firmly resisted. Not only would that be a violation of an absolute and peremptory rule of international law, it would also be responding to a crime against humanity with a further crime under international law. Moreover, it would be signaling to the terrorists that the values espoused by the international community are hollow and no more valid than the travesties of principle defended by the terrorists. Over the course of several years following September 11th, we established secret prisons. We established a full-fledged torture program that was designed to torture people, even though everyone knew that you, you don't get intelligence from torture. And that was uh, Alka Pradhan, who is currently a lawyer to one of the detainees at the Guantanamo Bay Military Commission. So. Guantanamo is still there and there are still people detained. Did you really want to focus in on what the current situation is, you know, in relation to torture now? Yeah, that definitely. Uh, I, I specifically chose that subject. Nigel wouldn't have wanted to just make a film about him. So then you will research Nigel Rodley. What did he all do? And of course, he was, he was huge on the issue of torture. And then you start thinking, okay, what, what would I like to tell uh, about torture? And then via the network of Nadja, we got in contact with Alka uh, Pratan, and she had a really close link uh, with Nigel, and she got a lot of help with Nigel uh, in her case. For me personally, there's of course this, this, this world, and it, it's mentioned in the, in the documentary also, it's a very hypocrite world. Uh, if you look at the, the, the Western countries, the US, if, if you might, may call it the leader of the world, and the Dutch uh, and the British and, and all the European allies, at one side they, they do a lot for human rights and they, they say, okay, we have to be better, etc., etc. But on the other hand, uh, there's happening a lot of hypocrite things in the world. And for me personally, cannot knock on the door of other countries and say you have to change your policies when we, as the West, still have a Guantanamo Bay. But isn't that then a whole new documentary? If you, you have the Nigel Rodley and what he did for torture, and then you have the current state of torture and, and the torture thing, it's hard to bring those two together, I assume. That was a, a big challenge to, to try to find a balance between the personal life of Nigel Rodley, the historic 
aspects of it, uh, his professional life, and then to bring in all these different topics and, and to, tell, to say something about torture. It was a huge puzzle, but I was really happy in the end. And the other thing that you make a connection with, I saw, and I'm sure you saw as well, Stephanie, is this disenchantment of the world and the attacks on the current human rights structure. I wonder in the end, are you saying that the human rights system is broken or uh, is it still worth teaching human rights to people? Or what do you think, Nadia? I think it is still uh, good to teach human rights. It's very important. And I don't think it's a system that's broken. I think the universality of human rights is still valid. And all the treaties, uh, they are good treaties. It's always A treaty is always a compromise because you have to compromise with all the states on a text and then it can be adopted. But I think, uh, I, I forgot who it was in the documentary who says uh, the populism is um, bringing simple solutions to complex problems. And that's the problem. So it's not the treaties and the human rights system that is per se bad or not good. Of course, it, it's not perfect. But as Nigel also says in the film, it's what we have and what we can work with. So a lot, I think, what we need is uh, education and talk about human rights, not only on civil and political rights, but also economic and social cultural rights and to bring them together and to explain that he, they are equally important. That does sound, I mean, and, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate here a bit, that does sound slightly condescending and something that human rights activists said, that, well, this is very complex and obviously you haven't understand it properly, so let me explain it again. It's not that, you, you know, you kind of, this is an opinion and by saying, well, we need to educate more, it's also saying that you are not smart enough to understand that we really need this. So I understand that human rights uh are valid, but you also, that's also a very kind of uh, human rights activists here and people on the ground there, and it's hard to cross that bridge. Uh, how do you see the role there? Well, it's not human rights activists are up here because human rights are for everyone. And I think that's, when I say educate, it's not tell people on the streets, you're wrong, this is, uh, you know, what you should be doing or let, let me tell you what is right. But we should at one point... Uh, try to uh, make it be understood. I don't know how to, to say it maybe properly. Uh, when you talk about someone in, in, in the documentary also says, you know, human rights is everywhere. It's for everyone. So when you talk about uh, healthcare, that's human rights as well, the right to uh, healthcare. When you talk about the right to housing, to food, it is everywhere. So it's not only the human rights acad uh, academics who sit in their universities who are dealing with human rights. It, it is important for all of us. And I think if uh, you see that more and more with the young people who are uh, marching on the streets, who are uh, demanding their rights, they might not call it rights, I want my right to this, but they're just, they are going on the streets and they want their fair share or and they might be talking about uh, equal pay or women and man equality. They might not call it rights, but it is all human rights. And so that's more what I mean, that it should be, we should in invest also as 
filmmakers, as um, people like me who work for a foundation, but also um, people who work in academia to make it maybe like the, the former high commissioner says that, you know, we might not realize how important human rights are and that they are everywhere. You just realize it the moment somebody chokes you and you realize if I don't get a breath in three minutes, then I'll be dead. And it's the same with the rights that you might not realize that they're everywhere. But the moment your rights are violated, then you understand how important they are. So I'm trying to find the right, right words to... For, to for, uh, if, I, if I may, yeah. may, may, yeah. may help you a little bit on, on this one. But I think if you, for example, you, you say, okay, the human rights activists are here and, and, and the people and, and there's a big gap. I think if you look at whatever people uh, in the world... Also, when they're, they're supporters of uh, Tommy Robinson in England or even the, the ultra-right, in fact, they are all talking about human rights. They might not be talking about the, the human rights, how, how we see human rights, but they are also asking for uh, my own country, my own safe place. Uh, I, I want work. I want my health care. Uh, uh, it's all human rights. Uh, I think one of the big problems of the human rights world is that, uh, and some people in documentary also mentioned that, is that it became much more uh, just organizations and to be very critical to, to those human rights organizations also, it became too much an industry where the connection with the normal people, people that are just like you and me, you know, on the street, uh, walking every day to get a bread, that connection has been lost. And uh, Mark Thompson, uh, he, he mentioned that also, that it became much more something like, okay, you as the people, you just give, give us money and we will do the professional job. So it became a huge industry and it lost in that way the connection with the movement. And in the end, if you really want change, the only way is bottom up. Let's just hear Nigel first um, uh, with his take on how central human rights are. I do think human rights will not become a thing of the past. Human freedom is something that is unquenchable, but at the same time I'm not determinist. It's unquenchable because human beings uh, will not let it be quenched, and they won't let it be quenched precisely because the movement will continue and and people will not be discouraged, or enough people will not be dis uh, sufficiently discouraged not to throw themselves into it. Uh, and particularly important, the media. Without the media, whatever we do in these meeting rooms, or whatever we do in our missions uh, to countries or whatever, nothing will get anywhere. It's only the interest of the media in this area of work that makes it possible to reach the most important court of the world, which is the court of international public opinion. Was the film designed to get discussion, to get engagement on these issues? Uh, yes. <laughs> With my foundation, Human Rights in the Picture, that's what we do. We use film as a tool. So we use, we use documentaries mainly because documentaries are an ideal tool to connect to people. You tell, you see personal stories and it's a good way to get people uh, engaged. And we thought it would be um, a good way uh, with this documentary to go around the world and then also involve our audiences. Um, so what we do when we show the film, 
we have uh, feedback cards and we divide our audience in seven different groups uh, from students to government officials to NGOs to multilateral organizations, academics. And uh, our dream is to go around the world and to ask at every occasion we have to show the film the um, audience to let us know what their ideas are about the future of human rights. And after touring with the film for a few years, we can compare if people in different parts of the world who are in the same group, for example, students, if they have different ideas, different worries. And we hope in that way we can inspire uh, the debate on the future of human rights involving people from the whole world and not only from the West. What is the reception and what can you already see a difference in the reactions? Yeah, it, it's been it, it's been shown all over the world already. I think we almost went to every continent, professionals and uh, also some different uh, nationalities. And yeah, the reactions are pretty strong sometimes. And they start like, why didn't you pick this, this topic or this topic? Well, of course, you have to make a choice when you make a doc documentary. And that's why I think many more documentaries uh, need to be made. Yeah, it, it's... Um, it's pretty tough <laughs> out there. So everybody takes their own frame and reacts to the film with their own issues. So it does help to really stimulate that, that discussion. Yeah. That's very important because, uh, and especially general public, you want, we want the general public to see this film everywhere. And, and we always uh, say you can share whatever comment you want, negative, positive, it can be extreme it can be you know whatever because that's what we want to know we want to know what people think about the future of human rights and not only in the human rights bubble please outside the bubble and then together uh, we can we hope to inspire this debate and come up with solutions uh, i think it's very important and that's also why we really hope to show this film to to young people maybe end of high school beginning of university before they make a choice. And I also think when you become a tax lawyer or when you become a, a you know, family law lawyer, I think it's very important to realize that also in, in those areas of the law, you have human rights. You know, you can be a government or a official uh, not working on law, but you can still have a human rights heart. For me, it's uh, working in human rights uh, as maybe not as a lawyer, but with someone with a law background. Uh, it, it makes you realize that we can all contribute something. For for me, one of the the um, one of my favorite quotes from the documentary is the um, priest. I don't know if that's the right word. Who talks about uh, the RNM people and say, you know, these heroes they didn't have names like Wonder Woman or Superman, but you know, we can all contribute, and that's what makes me going in this work. Thanks very much. To wrap up, we always have our haircuts questions. We usually have one person and we ask all three of one person. But we'll divide between you two looking also at the time. Um, so the first question is for Victor. What does everybody always get wrong about the work that you do? I think what they don't realize is how long and time consuming a process of making a film is. And like comments, like yesterday also, after the film, why didn't you pick this? And it's so hypocrite, you have to do this, yeah, you have to do this, and you have to bring this to more people, etc. Huge problem, 
I think in my line of work, and especially when you want to make something about human rights, is to get funds. Funding is 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 very important, not just for my my, my profession, but also for journalism. And you can all wish for a better society and to educate human rights, etc., etc. But you also with all of it you have to back it up by funding these kind of initiative what's kind of what kind of art initiative or journalism initiative or independent journalism initiative let's put it like that foundations like Nacha's uh, foundation we are always struggling and me for example I'm an independent filmmaker I, I just sometimes it's just I'm just like completely stuck financially and you have to choose again to find some commercial job but I rather spend my time uh, contributing uh, to human rights than that I have to go again make some, well, with all due respect, some stupid commercial about uh, some product. But yeah, at the moment I I need to do that to make also a living and to pay for the bills. And it seems more and more difficult nowadays to find these funds, uh, and and that's 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 a shame. And Nadia. Which question didn't we ask you that we should have done? What uh, what haven't we asked you? This film, Victor and I, we, it took us two years to make this film. So it was a long haul making the film. Um, but uh, what is very positive, it's positive and negative at the same time. What's very positive, that many people who funded the film were young people, students. They all shared five euros, five pounds, ten. And we had assumed when we started this that all these people that Nigel knew who work you know have bigger salaries would jump in and it would be easy to fund but it were the young people that mostly of course also organizations I mean I should give credit to Essex University and to the IBA and to all the NGOs that helped us. But the first ones to donate were the students because they were inspired by him and they are the future. And uh, I I think that's very hopeful for us. And yes, it's difficult to fundraise. um, But there's also, I mean, if you see the younger generation, also yesterday at Leiden University, it's nice that they come on a Thursday evening and and they stayed also for the discussion and for the drinks afterward and and we're talking with uh, professionals and trying to find opportunities to work in human rights. So I think it's uh, that's what we are trying to do also with this film to inspire young people. Also, we don't have to forget that you always have to stay positive and. Uh, one of the big issues nowadays is to filter information. What is true, what is not true, uh, uh, and that you that you not be fooled. And I, for example, follow the, the World Economic Forum. It's like this on, on the social media. And they, they post, uh, I think together with WWF and, and some other organizations, they post a lot of positive, uh, uh, innovative uh, solutions for, for, for a better world. I think that's very positive also. And the final question, because we're now here with two people who see a lot of documentary films, um, we always ask, have you seen or read anything recently that you recommend? But I expect that your taste will be very much into the movies. But um, so we're wondering what would be your like top two recommendations of things to must see, must read? Um, can I name a book as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's a Dutch book by a... Um, a um, historian and philosopher Rutger Brechtman from The Correspondent. And the, the title, if I would translate it from Dutch, it's uh, most people, uh, how you say that in Dutch, you say the meeste people, the uh, meeste mensen deugen. So most people are okay. are okay. Yeah, and it's this whole concept, and he has a podcast about it too, that um, 
um, yeah, maybe we were always fooled with the idea that people essentially are bad. And I find I'm, I'm looking also very much with my work I'm towards things that are positive, but he backs it up. It's a very thick book with... You know, I think um, I see. I googled it, and I think the English title is uh, "Hopeful History: Humankind: okay. A Hopeful History." Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put it into the blog. And uh, what about you? Do you have anything you want to recommend? A book or a film? Oh, well, I, I just mentioned already the World Economic Forum uh, 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 on on Instagram. I, I like them a lot, but there are many more. So uh, I have one other article that I read the other day, but it's not that positive. So I'm not sure if I should mention it. But it's a, it's a Dutch guy who promoted, I think, like 16 years ago, uh, and he researched all the wars that has been going on in this world, and he found a mathematical formula, and he predicts the Third World War in 2020 to start. So. You know, we have oh, a lot no. of work to do. We need to prevent that from happening. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so. on that wonderful note, thank <laughs> you so much. Um, thank you very much, Victor. Thank you, Nadia, for making the time to uh, to talk to us after your screening uh, here in thank The Hague. You. And uh, yeah, well, we'll look out for your next, uh, next projects. Thank yeah. you for having us. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.